I think we've learned a lot since 2011 that you can remove Mubarak, mm. but that doesn't remove an underlying yeah. system and an underlying din- dynamic. And yeah. what you're seeing now is people realizing that you need to get rid of um, an entire system and not just a single leader. David Kenner. I think that you are seeing this broad indictment of the political class yeah. um, in Lebanon that you saw with the Ustik movement. There's a leaderless component this time around, mm-hmm. which we haven't seen before. Even during the Ustik crisis, there were there was leadership. There were names, and there were you could point at certain people and say they are part, they are leading this. Uh, for the time being, it's been now I think 38 days since this began this revolt began, and there's no sign of a figure emerging yet, or for that matter, a team, or there's no group that has sort of taken on that mantle. And do you think that this type of momentum can sustain itself without leadership forming? Because it's so fluid at the moment, and it Mm -hmm. seems like the strength is in that it's leaderless, but do you see this as something that can translate to political power? I mean, it's a great question. Um, I I think the leaderlessness of this current moment is in some ways a reaction to the fact that uh, leadership of the Ustink movement did um, arise, and that created some tensions Mm -hmm. within the movement. Um, And and I think some of the current organizers and current people involved look back at that as a mistake because it it ended up sapping energy from it. Look, I I mean, I think it's a bug and a feature. Um, It's a feature in the way that um, everyone is organizing their own social groups. Everyone Mm -hmm. is um, taking part in this um, sort of organically. Um, And and, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, the, the bug part of it is... It becomes harder to to figure out how you get people to the streets when you need it. And it becomes a little harder to figure out how you develop a political agenda and what you actually want um, when there's no one that can speak for the movement as a whole. So in a sense, it's too early to tell what this will turn into maybe a few weeks or months from now. Yeah, yeah, I'm certainly watching, but I I don't presume to know what's going to happen. The Tahrir moment in 2011 in Egypt, which Mm -hmm. you you covered, that moved quickly. Mm -hmm. It moved within... I mean, it was just three weeks and the regime or the the, the face of the regime fell. Uh, Tunisia was very quick. Uh, Libya, it sort of degenerated into something else. But the fact that it was so, it, it seemed so rapid and it fit my superficial understanding of what a revolution requires, which is speed, momentum and immediate change. It doesn't seem like that's the case here. Uh, It's technically still the same government. Um, The protests are ongoing, but other than the resignation of the prime minister, I believe now three and a half weeks ago, there hasn't been much political change, Mm -hmm. at least in what we call the Lebanese state and all its entities. It's just the prime minister's resignation. Do you sense that that's an obstacle in terms of just keeping things moving forward that it can take two months or maybe longer to see another person resign or perhaps no one else resigns 
I'm just curious about the like the actual what's required in a revolution because it seems like Lebanon's definitions for everything there's always a caveat to the story mm-hmm. and revolutions here are very different than revolutions next door or for that matter throughout the region mm-hmm. so what is your take on that just in terms of the amount of time it's taking to see change right um, not from the protesters but from the state from the political class yeah it's interesting that to me there there seem to be two different stories that are going on and they're tangentially related to each other but but are are sort of going in different paths one is the popular demonstrations and mm. the popular reaction and the other is sort of the official reactions yes. um, which um, sometimes seem to be occurring in its own world and we see we saw a, what looked like a scuffle parliamentarians unable to reach parliament right. protesters preventing the quota but that was it it's right. not like the parliament resigned or the protesters stormed the parliament yeah um, I mean, to me, what is more important is looking at the popular reaction and the popular organization, mm. whether you're seeing the creation of sort of new populist, popular movements mm. that, that can sort of tackle some of Lebanon's systemic problems regarding mm. sectarianism, regarding the economic situation, yes. regar- regarding class divides in the country. Um, the, on the official level, I mean, obviously, as you said, it, it's not moving very fast at all. Right. Um, and, and the reaction is, I mean, the, the situation's fairly stagnant. I, I would say that's less important other than the fact that Lebanon is facing a fairly um, massive economic crisis. And yes, without yes. an official reaction to that, you're mm. going to see a worsening situation, which is going to affect the popular movement in, yeah. in major ways that we don't quite know yet. Right. And that, uh, the fact that we haven't actually crashed yet. Right. It seems like an inevitability, but we haven't really hit bankruptcy for the moment. If you start seeing an official devaluation of the pound, if you start seeing yeah. the banks taking a haircut on deposits, yeah. I mean, that is going to add fuel to the protests, but it's also going to add a ton of anger. And I yeah. mean, who knows what directions they take. That that's really could change sort of the mood in the country. Now, stepping out from Lebanon and looking at the region, uh, last few weeks, Iraq has had mm-hmm. similar images emerging. Of course, the death toll is higher. Uh, fortunately, only one protester has, and I want to say it, fortunately, it is quite, uh, it's relieving that only one protester has died in Lebanon, mm-hmm. but hundreds have been killed in Iraq, sure. perhaps more. Uh, Iran is seems to be under blackout. We don't know exactly what's going on, but it's a, there is a violent uh, reaction to the state there. Do you sense that all these countries, and we could even include northern Syria, which has had protests in the last few days, do you think that these are all similar grievances that are being expressed at the same time? Or is this a movement against a status quo that has a geopolitical component? And what I mean by that is, do Iraqis want economic reform? And are they fighting corruption the way we are here? Are Iranians doing the same thing? Or is there a, a struggle against perhaps the powers that are and, uh, that have been preserving their their sway in the region, and I want. I mean, this is as uh, as speculative and subjective as possible because it, at times it seems like this is sincerely a local mm-hmm. grievance, and then other times you do see layers that overlap. Right. When it comes to geopolitics. Yes, they have similar grievances, mm. and those similar grievances. The fact that 
they have similar grievances and there are similarities in the countries mm-hmm. um, are a product of the fact that there is a sort of an international geopolitical reality in yeah. this region that has created similar circumstances in all these countries. Right. Um, I do not buy the um, thesis that all of these people in the different countries are sort of revolting against um, the Iranian regime per right. se. They, right. This isn't driven by a dislike of the people of, in power in yes. Tehran. Yeah. But and we, um, don't, we don't even see that in the slogans. Right, right. If they're there, they're fringe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that said, there is a political reality in a lot of Middle East countries that is created a political and economic reality by a whole range of actors from Iran to Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. United States to, to Russia. I mm-hmm. mean, th- this is this has created a, a common economic and political grievances in all these countries. So the fact is that they're, I mean, it's interesting to say, to see it as both and that they just happen to line up this way for the time being. Mm-hmm. But do you, do you sense that there is a strategic threat to that status quo, that you could see something else replacing Iran's influence in the region as a result of local grievances? When you look back at Lebanese history, you see a lot of examples of legitimate popular outrage mm-hmm being seized upon by international actors or mm. local actors mm. for their own purposes. Mm. Yeah. In fact, it's hard to think of a situation where legitimate popular grievances weren't seized on by those actors for right. their own purposes. Right. Um, it is hard to think of a situation where popular demonstrations and popular anger and that led to political change did not come through violence. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's... That's not a happy reality. That's a super grim reality. But but yeah, absolutely, it, it could have geopolitical consequences. And what would you speculate Iran's reaction to that? I mean, because we saw we saw a local mm-hmm. reaction to the protesters several weeks ago. We saw counter protesters ransack Martyrs Square and burn tents to the ground. And then the reaction from the protesters was simply put those tents back mm-hmm. and not fall into that sectarian. Uh, way of reacting, which was great, which in a way maybe saved the momentum mm-hmm. and saved the protests from degenerating into what could have been real violence. Kellon Yani Kellon outweighed any other chant. Mm-hmm. Yesterday we saw a very very small version of that. We saw the revolution sign burned to the ground in Martyrs Square. Mm-hmm. So this is not really geopolitical. Mm-hmm. These are very local and perhaps a few blocks radius within Beirut. But if Iran were to sense that it's its status and its, its, its power that it has seized on and it's sort of worked very hard to preserve. If that were to be threatened by these levels of economic anger and all that we're seeing, well, do, you, do you think that potential violence is on the horizon as a result of that? Yeah, I mean, I think any, and I don't want to just speak about Iran here, I think any international actor is not going to just let its equities in Lebanon disappear without a fight. Um, I mean, speaking about Lebanon, I mean, I lived in Lebanon in May 2008. I mean, we we saw what happened when they, when Iran and its allies consider its proxies threatened in in Lebanon. Um, I I don't know if that would work again, but sure, I, I think it would be Foolish to say that people weren't worried. People mm-hmm. are, are absolutely worried, and, and 
God, I hope it doesn't go in that direction, but yeah. sure. So, the, I mean, that, that is a, in a sense, it's, we know what it looks like and we've lived through it. Mm-hmm. It didn't turn into civil war, but it did turn into a, a, a battle that cost lives and people were, Lebanon was on edge. And there is that, that, that threat is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. That if Hezbollah, or for that matter, any, any group here that is financed and influenced by another country, that if, they're, if their positioning was threatened, we may see a repeat of that. Mm-hmm. Do you sense that the protesters see it this way at all? And I mean it in terms of that Hezbollah has not really been brought up, mm-hmm. or its weapons have not been brought up. Uh, countries have not been discussed on the ground. It's really just pure economics and politics and, mm-hmm. and very grassroots. Do you think that that's the strength of this moment, that because it's not being addressed, it may be even more threatening to the status quo? I mean, Kulon Yani Kulon has been such an effective slogan mm. for the protesters because mm. it is all-encompassing. But I am very interested to see what happens when when or if it start the movement starts to get more specific like yeah, yeah. Fuad Senora is corrupt what you know maybe Fuad Senora should go on trial I'm just picking a name at random you've um, seen snippets of that Nishimi yeah. Ati's name was of thrown course. out yeah of course and if if that happens if it happens to Senora do Sunnis in the protest movement start yeah. saying hey why isn't this happening to Randa Berry why, yeah. why is it just our guy or if it happens to um, just take a take a reverse example. Um, you know, Ali Hassan Khalil. Why, why isn't it happening to the other side? Yeah, the other side. Yeah. I mean, th- that. So, I mean, I mean, I think Kulon Yani Kulon has been extremely effective to this moment. But I am yeah. interested to see what happens when the rubber meets the road and mm. we try to translate those slogans and this popular momentum into actual steps of political change. Right. Because right. I think that's going to be a very fraught moment. Can, yeah. can, you, can you both tackle, can you, can you tackle all these, these different actors at the same time or, or yeah. is, it, is there going to have to be an order? And once that, once that order is set, you're going to start um, antagonizing certain segments. I, I honestly have no idea. Let's take it a step further and leaving the region and America's posturing yeah. towards all that's happening in this part of the world. Sure. Uh, Jeffrey Feltman was testifying in Congress. I think David Welsh was also testifying. Uh, the Americans have nominally supported the protests in the region. There's also been a reluctance to send money to the army. It's, I think it's still frozen. It is. Um, and there's almost a, an internal problem within the administration. The White House doesn't want that money. State Department does. But the bigger picture, American interest in the region, does any of this cause concern to the Americans? Mm-hmm. So in other words, security, diplomacy, terrorism, all the things that America would be concerned about here. Is any of that uh, an issue for the moment? Mm-hmm. Whether it's Lebanon, Iraq, Iran. And I'm just curious what the Americans are wanting from this situation and you I know that you are you you have written about American policy in the region I know sure. that I'm just curious your perspective on, on that front there are two questions here and one of them I think very few people know and the other I can speak to um, the, the one very few people know is what the White House or the US government are thinking about the Lebanon protests exactly and why mm-hmm. the aid is frozen yeah. I don't know the answer to that um, yeah. exactly the second 
thing that I know more about, um, having sort of directed foreign policies, Middle East coverage for a long time, is how American officials broadly think about Lebanon and how the American media covers Lebanon. And in my experience, especially this present moment, you know, they, they really do see the protest through the prism of Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Um, does this represent a threat to Hezbollah? Does it represent a uh, renunciation of Iran among mm-hmm. the Lebanese populace? And how can we sort of use this as leverage to achieve our policy goals there? Right. And I think that sometimes leads to analytical mistakes, as in seeing these protests as solely mm-hmm. regarding Iranian hegemony or Hezbollah's weapons right. when that is not at all what I hear yes. in in Lebanon. Um, but but it really is seen through the pres- prism of Hezbollah, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is sort of the main American item on the policy agenda in, right. in Lebanon. So as long as it, it either antagonizes or even for that matter could potentially enhance Hezbollah's role, that's the prism. I have not heard had one discussion with a friend uh, in Washington or, yeah. or a policymaker about systemic corruption in mm-hmm. Lebanon, mm-hmm. you know, or you know the the failures of the recent democratic election. I mean, yeah. the fa- the failures of democracy. I, I think those issues generally are considered peripheral by um, people in Washington mm-hmm. to their own detriment, frankly. Mm-hmm. And that's been a consistency, whether it's the Obama administration or the Trump administration. I don't remember the Arab Spring, uh, the economics being top on the list when it came to concerns. Absolutely. It was more security. Absolutely. You've seen reactions to secularism and sectarianism, and largely both have failed Mm -hmm. in terms of social contracts in in other countries in this part of the world. We saw the Arab Spring. We saw a true sectarian war in Iraq. So I'm curious what you think uh, is on the horizon and what do you think, where do you think Lebanese stand today in that dichotomy? A lot of Lebanese will tell you they're against sectarianism. Mm-hmm. My guess is if you did a poll of Lebanon and say, ask people, are you in favor of sectarianism or against sectarianism? Yeah. You'd probably get a pretty strong majority that said against sectarianism. We want, I am secular. We want a sec- secular system. Right. Um, But that hasn't translated into change because there's always the question of, gee, this is what I believe. Is my neighbor going to give it up too? Or are they going to stick to their their sectarian leaders and essentially eat up all the parts of the pie while I'm essentially um, giving up support from my sectarian leaders? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, I, I think that's what's greatly inspirational about this current moment of protest in that people are saying, no, I'm ready to take that leap. No, this situation isn't serving anyone. And and anyone who is sticking to their sectarian leaders are dupes, essentially, for doing so. That they're um, that, that you're holding the country back. Um, and, and that, and that if, if I don't take the leap, um, we're gonna, we're all going to be held back. Um, so, so I think that that's hugely inspiring. And, um, you are seeing symbols of that in in Iraq too, um, right? And it seems like yes, that it's the first time that you see real momentum for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the way that you describe that. You take a poll, and yeah, maybe 90 percent want something else. Yeah, but it's un, it's not really tested. Right. What powers, what communal relationships would look like without that, that pluralism among communities within government. Right. And I, 
after talking to many people that speak highly of the power sharing model, mm-hmm. it took me time to to adjust my thinking. I do see that there is something there that that Lebanon's pluralism stands out. The breathing space among communities that might be sectarianism's best achievement in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Everything else failed, including economics and I mean every other item on the plate is, is has been an abysmal failure. But pluralism has survived. Mm-hmm. And it survived war, it survived chaos, it survived bankruptcy, it survived many things, it survived history, and it's still there. And I'm always wondering what the power sharing would look like if we were to really sort of address it head on. And that's uh, it's something that I'm always very curious about, because I think our generation, I want to put you as a Lebanese Thank you, compatriot here since you're I, I wish, I wish Lebanese. I was. Well, you, you, are, <laughs> you should be Lebanese. Sadly, the law. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. We're, we're fighting to change. Please, so we're please. fighting to make you Lebanese, you. David Kenner. Oh, God. <laughs> but I, I wonder, I mean, I think we're maybe the last generation that has fear from the war. Mm-hmm. And it's not from our own eyes. It could be from our parents telling us the war was fought and sectarianism was central to it. Right. And even if that's not necessarily true all the time, but sectarianism and the war are sort of combined. This younger generation that we see on the streets, I don't think they have active memory. Mm-hmm. And I think their parents are less concerned with it. It seems like for the first time, you may see a form of secularism, which is unusual in Lebanon, entering the public sphere. And right. the, yeah. what, what you just said jabs with my own experience, mm. that, that, that there is a generational divide here. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And sort of 1990 serves as a pretty good cutoff point. Yes. I look at it as a double-edged sword in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, you sometimes want to tell the younger generation, like, look, don't, th- this can get really bad, you know, exactly. right? At yeah. the other time, they're right. I mean, you know, it, yeah. the political model that um, has been created in Lebanon from the Civil War has not served anyone well. Mm-hmm. Um, and bravo for them for taking to the streets and trying to change it. And that's a constant tension in the way that I I think about the country. Yeah. Your work in Saudi Arabia. Of course. I'm curious what you think Saudi Arabia's concerns are today for its vested interests. And I mean it in not just necessarily supporting a politician in Lebanon Mm -hmm. or perhaps helping the central bank at times Mm -hmm. or the economy, just in terms of the way Saudi Arabia views these protests. Do you think that they are happy what they're seeing on the streets or do you think they're worried do do their views line up with iran paradoxically that they see unrest as potentially destabilizing for them as well Um, so while i am more focused on economics and my fellowship centers on economic change within saudi arabia um, just in the context of my my position at the King Faisal Center there, I do have conversations with Saudis about what's going on in Lebanon. Um, so I, I could speak about that, though it is certainly not the official Saudi government stance on anything. Um, in my sense, like the Americans, they see it through the prism of Hezbollah and Iran. Oh, interesting. Um, so in a way, they're... The, the, yeah. There's a very similar attitude toward um, as the Americans mm. toward these protests, which are 
are these bad for Hezbollah? Do, mm-hmm, does mm-hmm. this represent a repudiation of Iran? Mm-hmm. And to the degree that it does, the Saudis are quite happy with the current moment. Mm-hmm. There is also no love lost in my, from my interlocutors with Saad Hariri. Yeah. They, um, they see him as sort of a weak leader um, who has sort of refused to confront Hezbollah direct, head on. Yeah. And that has... Um, meant that they are perfectly happy to see his government fall. It's a marked shift from just a few years ago where the Saudis still sort of did play a role in in this country, that they're in a way just waiting to see what happens to Hezbollah, and that's their concern. Less to do with particular names or, for that matter, the economy. It's really now about security as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there might be more things happening on in the Saudi government that mm. I'm not privy to, because again, it's not the focus of my research. But um, I think they were, they felt let down by their allies in the country and yeah. their failure to confront Hezbollah and Iran. Yeah. And at some level, wash their hands of that situation. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. To, yes. So really, the only regional power that is potentially sort of seeing its 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 influence at stake is Iran. That it's really just about them now when it comes to real concern about these protests. All other countries seem to be just waiting and seeing whether or not Iran's assets will be damaged. Yes, my sense from my conversations, mm. the Saudis will not see the fall of the present government as a loss for them, yes. but a loss for Iran. We met over 13 years ago. We did. And we were both students of Middle East studies at AUB. And we took courses together. We were, we were friends. We're still friends. We but, still are. <laughs> but we were, we were kids compared to what's happening now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want, I'm just curious about your own, your own opinions on Lebanon and the region. When you first came here and you were curious about the region and you were a political science student and you were, I remember you had a blog and you were, mm. you were approaching it through studying and offering your own opinions from a sort of a fresh slate. Yes. 13 years later, do you see your own views shifting? And I'm just sort of, this is more like a subjective journey that has this region made you approach the Middle East differently just by studying it and living here? I mean, when I look back at sort of the seminal moments of my time in the Middle East, I think of May 2008, and I think of 2013 in Egypt, the coup, which Mm. I covered from uh, Rabat Square, um, which are not Mm. happy moments. Yes. Um, yes. And I I don't want to be like the entirely cynical, Mm -hmm. but I think I was extremely naive when I came um, to this part of the world in thinking sort of that the arc of history bends toward justice, that, Mm -hmm. you know, things were inexorably getting a little better day by day and there would be roadblocks, um, but that at the end of the day, these sort of um, stagnant autocracies could not survive. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I believe that anymore, Um, that... And that, that's super depressing and a super depressing note to end on. Um, but I do think that I came in from sort of a very ideological place yeah. that eventually this place will come closer to my sense of what is just and fair and equitable. And I think 
today I'm more at a place where I try to make less judgments and try to understand people a little better about what their perspective is mm. and how their perspective fuels their political choices, if that makes sense. So in a way, it's become a localized journey as mm-hmm. opposed to a sort of a, not necessarily American policy, but just sort of that, that universal yearning for justice. And you've seen you've become, in a way, you've seen it through the eyes of the locals. Yeah, I try to, let me put it this way. I came at it thinking... I have this idea of what a better country Mm. or a better region looks like. And it's my sense that over time, the world is going to look more like that. And that, I think, is very naive. I think a better way to look at it is to try to figure out, okay, what are the people in this country? What what are the people in this part of the world, this region, this city, this district, whatever? how do they perceive these the world around them? How do they perceive the conflicts around them? And taking that seriously as the factors that shape the, the region. Simply because your work has allowed you to see it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had a lot of experience. You know, I mean, the conflict in Syria, the situation in Lebanon does not look the same to a Lebanese, maybe yeah. a Lebanese in a southern village, to a Le- the Lebanese, a Lebanese in yeah. Ashrafiyat, to someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's them at the end of the day who sort of shape the popular reaction to things, not me with sort of pie in the sky uh, thoughts about how the country should be. True. But I'll flip that now and ask you, ha- have your views on America changed now that you've spent the better part of 13 years away from the States? Mm. Do you see America differently? And I mean, I'm not talking just about Trump. Yeah. Talking about just a, a general, uh, a general emotion towards America and American politics. I think when I came to Lebanon, well, for to to get the timeline, I moved to Turkey in 2005 and moved to Beirut in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, the Iraq War was at its height, and there yeah. was still attitude among Americans. I think that. We could fix things that that all we we can have a sort of made in America solution yes. to these things that that I think um, I think unconsciously I sort of adopted those attitudes that gee the United States could sort of put a solution in a box and transfer that box to yeah. Iraq or to Lebanon yeah. and really sort of push change mm. into um, uh, in a positive direction. I think over the past 13 years, I have sort of become disabused of that notion <laughs> and the the degree to which the United States can change these places. Yeah. And sometimes when I go back to the United States, I am struck by by a degree of disagreement with with people who think there are easy, pat, Mm -hmm. made-in-America solutions Mm -hmm. to these places. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think the simple truth is that there are a lot of these issues that the United States simply can't um, fix. But that's not because of what looks like disengagement, whether it's the Obama administration or Mm -hmm. Trump. That is simply America's limits on power. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? That it's less to do with the presidents or the administrations. It's actual what America can and cannot do. Yes, I think there are... um, I'm not speaking sort of here about one administration. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking about sort of an appreciation of the limits of American power Mm -hmm. and also the limits of American knowledge about these places. I think there is a a tendency among Americans 
um, probably, I mean, among a lot of foreigners, I, if I lived in Moscow, I bet you'd see this among Russians, right. that to um, oversimplify what's happening in these countries. Yes. Um, and um, I, I think that um, leaves out a lot of context. Well, I'm glad that we've known each other this long to have this kind of conversation and reflection. Uh, thank you for your time, David, and I appreciate your reflections on a place you call home. Thank you so much, and hopefully in 13 years we'll be doing this again about the United States, and I'll be asking you the questions. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Let's give it 13 years and see what happens. <laughs> thank you, David. Thank you, Ronnie. This is a pleasure. Thank you.